Hey, everybody. How's it going? This is Rob Turley, your host of Down the Rabbit Hole podcast. I am very happy to have my man Marcus Kauke here again. Uh, he was the, on the first episode. He's now on the 26th episode, so that's very exciting. Um, so right after that 25, like, anniversary, like quarter century movement, Marcus comes in again. So it's like new chapter, right? It's a lot of fun. Uh, we're going to be talking about buyer safety. We're going to be talking about sales, a force for good. And we're going to be talking about how rather than trying to sell more, sell more, sell more, that strategic alliances are where that 10X is versus that 10% that everybody's aiming for. So Marcus, if you don't mind, please introduce yourself a little bit more so everybody can understand a little bit about who you are. Hi, I'm Marcus Kauke. I'm a man of five foot seven and the right weight for a man of 15 foot eight. Um, I've spent the last 35 years in sales and I've worked across 500 different segments of the market as a trainer, as a coach, and now as a fractional chief revenue officer. I work with companies that want to accelerate and achieve significant hyper growth. So 200% growth per annum year on year, At least. without the wings or the wheels coming off. And uh, I've also uh, co-founded a movement called Sales of Force for Good, whose intention is to wrestle back ownership and control of the sales profession from the shysters and snake oil salespeople and to challenge bad management and leadership thinking and bad investor advice. Right, right. And that would also be a volunteer program too. So it, nobody's paid, everybody's just doing it to make a difference. It's for the betterment of sales and what sales stands for because honestly, pretty sure everybody is sick of all the bullshit. So. Cut yeah, out well, just one other point, Rob, that we are capturing all the best practices and the ROI use cases uh, and making all of those lessons freely available to anyone who's part of the community forever. Um, yeah, so this isn't about making money for ourselves. This is about rate elevating the sales profession, making an aspirational career choice and creating the conditions for the next generation of salespeople and sales leaders can look themselves in the eye without shame. Um, right. What's happened in the last 40 years is just frankly upsetting and obscene. Uh, sales took a massive wrong turn when it allowed the corporate raiders of the late uh, 1970s, early 1980s, um, and Milton Friedman to come along with the myth that businesses should worship at the altar of shareholder value. Um, that's just complete horseshit. Anyway, it, I'll let you carry on and then I can. It's, it's not people centric at any point of that. There's to the whole we worship what the share price is, that usually sacrifices the humility and how human a company is. It becomes inhuman, it becomes a money machine. And there's a lot of people yeah. at their jobs. Well, um, Henry Ford said it better than me. Um, you know, he had his moments of not being so great. Um, but he said that a company that's set up just to make money is a bad business. And a company that isn't set up to serve its customers, to serve its people, to serve its community, is a soulless, horrible place to work. And you only have to look at the burnout rate, you look at the turnover, you look at the churn of customers, and, and it economically, it just does not make sense. There was an S&P 500 study of all the companies in the S&P 500 from 2010 to 2016. And companies that had highly engaged employees had a 316% year-on-year compound growth in their share price compared with everybody else with mildly engaged, disengaged, or actively disengaged employees. They produced 273% higher profit per employee. 137%, I think, uh, higher revenue per employee, 40% lower turnover, and 20% higher daily productivity. The, uh, on no plane or uh, no uh, framework, uh, is there any evidence that treating people like a commodity and burning through them is economically the best model? It's actually the worst kind of model. And all it does is make a few people extremely wealthy whilst everyone who made them successful burns out and feels resentful yep i've worked at companies like that before it's not great and no. uh, yeah you burn out really quick it's almost like slave labor it's terrible and you don't have a purpose while you work because the mission the vision and the purpose should all align 
if that's there's no alignment there from the top to the bottom, that creates some serious issues in all of those areas that you just mentioned, 100%. Well, you, you've touched on something else that's really critical, which is that unless marketing, sales, customer success, account growth, operations, professional services are all aligned and everything they do is built around the customer, then the customer is an afterthought at the, uh, the end of a long chain. And that explains why they always feel grubby. There were two reports that came out at the end of 2020, one from Gartner and one from uh, LinkedIn. The Gartner one said that a third of business-to-business buyers want a 100% seller-free buying experience. Now, if that isn't enough of a damning indictment, LinkedIn's state of sales quoted 67% of buyers consider sales and salespeople, and I quote, to be morally bankrupt. That's not the world I occupy. That's not the world the people that I work with occupy. But I know it is the world that many buyers come into contact with. And that has to stop. Enough is enough. Wow. That quote, morally bankrupt. That's, uh, wow. <laughs> Without putting too fine a point on it, it's fucking obscene. It's depressing, but it's fucking obscene. The idea that buyers are somehow uh, rolled over the coals are um, this inconvenient um, uh, inconvenience that um, investors can quite happily tell their salespeople to lie to, to steal from, uh, to manipulate, to put pressure under. We exist because of the customer, not in spite of them. They're not just this afterthought. They're the very reason for our business to exist. Yeah, and they're the very reason pressure, for sure. to exist. Pressured sales is really annoying. It's not fair. It's pushing people into something before they've made a decision. And whether they want it or not is not even the key right there. It has nothing to do with it. It just has to do with, we need this person to hand over money, fork it over right away. And as soon as they hand it over, what happens next doesn't matter. And I think there's a lot of issues right there too. With They always say it's the sales to customer success or whatever that whatever division, whatever they want to call it. A sales to customer success handoff or trade-off or pass it's not a pass. It's an introduction. It should well, not be a pass. Because it's a pass. There's a disconnect. I, I, I disagree, and I'll tell you why. I think um, marketing should speak to customers. I think customer success should be brought in earlier in the sale. So it's not a handover. They're part of the sales process. I think compensation needs to change. Um, the, the reason people don't look at their comp plan is bloody hard work. How do you compensate everybody? who's helped to make the customer successful. I know firsthand how hard that is. <laughs> it's really bloody difficult. Now, add to that um, the fact that most compensation is geared around new business. Um, the golden child of most sales organizations is uh, these hunters who are, uh, they've got a will to win, they're hyper-competitive, they're motivated by money. I don't know about you, but if you've ever been sold to by one of them, you literally want to wash after they've been anywhere near you. It sure. just feels grubby. And I, I have um, a four-letter word that begins with C and sounds like a Danish king uh, to describe them. Um, but they are. They're bloody awful people. And you do not want those people representing your brand. But that is what passes for great in sales. It's what recruiters are briefed on. Um, it's what senior leadership and management love. Why? Because they hit quota. But the reality is you can hit quota more consistently, more predictably, if you play the long game, if you have the customer at the heart, if buyer safety is central to what you do. You know, do we, we fundamentally believe that every buyer deserves to feel safe whenever they engage with a salesperson. And for salespeople to make create those conditions, they have to be reliable. They have to consistently and continuously be relevant and they need to be completely responsive and this means that they have to operate with a rigorous level of authenticity so that the customer can drop their guard and stop being closed and they can be open you can have authentic conversation where both sides are vulnerable both sides um, tell the truth both sides admit when they don't know and uh, the seller conf confidently recommends a competitor because they're a better fit um, 
you, you need to be able to enter into constructive conflict. You need to be able to fight with your customers. Uh, when you see them doing uh, something stupid and are an act of idiocy, you should be saying to them, well, hang on a second, Rob. Um, if you do that, these are the consequences. There's a better way. Um, and you need to communicate with absolute clarity. And you know, ambiguity is the mother of all foobars. Um, and the, the problem is that salespeople have a tendency not to want to enter into this rigorously authentic, constructive conflict with people because they're afraid they won't be liked. But I've One of the greatest fears is fear of conflict. Uh, and conflict is important because it, you're trying to help solve a problem. And, and problems are not solved with some lovey-dovey conversation that everybody agrees. I've interviewed dozens and dozens of CXOs, and I have never once, not once, had one of them say, we don't want salespeople to challenge us. Without any single exception, every one of them wants to be challenged. They want um, to leave smarter as a result of the engagement with the salesperson. And that means the salesperson has to put the customer at the heart of everything they do. Instead of being self-centered, Everything is about helping the customer to succeed. They form long-term partnerships with their customers. Uh, they create strong and sustainable agreements that weather the test of time, that weather change and weather adversity. And they're deeply, deeply collaborative. They, they work with their customers over time to deliver sustained success and co-develop products and co-develop solutions that allow them to create value and deliver outcomes that make the customer successful. And so the compensation, I believe, needs to shift. And the biggest payout is when the customer's outcomes are achieved and they have been successful as a result of ha having made that investment in you and your partners. Because I think certainly if you're in the tech space, chances are you're just one cog in the machine in a bunch of moving parts. And it's your job to make sure that customers are successful in achieving their outcomes. And the compensation has to drive that. Recruitment has to drive that. What you measure has to drive that. And that requires a shift in culture at an executive level, at an investor level, and all the way through the revenue operations, marketing, sales, customer success, account growth, operations, professional services. And most people, too damn lazy or too damn stupid to do the thinking. Right, and with that disconnect, it causes problems. I agree with you with the sales and marketing disconnect. That's one of the oldest problems in the book is the, the gap that needs to be bridged between marketing and sales. So marketing always points the fingers at salespeople saying they have no idea how to sell. Uh, they can't close anything. We pass them leads all the time. We're getting all this interest and everything like that. Okay, uh, so, oh yeah, it's all their fault. And then salespeople turn around and point fingers at the marketing team saying, well, they're not marketing to the right demographic. Every, every lead they pass us is garbage, blah, 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 blah. It's their fault. So everybody's just pointing fingers and no one's solving problems. So the issue really is the target where the salespeople can close certain people because people buy from people they like, trust, and can relate to. There's a certain demographic. There's a certain psych psychography behind the people that they're able to sell to. And this is totally disregarded by marketing, but it's not their fault because they're going based off of what they've been taught for years, years, and years. The, so, the, five, the five biggest competitors every marketing and sales operation has, fear, apathy, ignorance, denial, and ego. The most forgivable is ignorance. You yeah. just don't know any better. Ego the is problem not problem is, ego is the absolute bastard in there. Um, ego traps you into getting dragged into this uh, gameplay, this drama. Um, and uh, it prevents you from actually operating with humility. Uh, right. It prevents you from operating with authenticity because you're worried about how other people will perceive you. You're worried about whether or not they'll like you. None of that matters. A lot of people, and you, your listeners won't be surprised, don't like me when they meet me. But they know they can bloody well trust me because I know what I'm talking about and I always have their best interests at heart. And I put their interests before mine. Why? Because the only thing that matters is their success. It's true. My, my, my success is a byproduct of that. I tell the people that I sell to all the time, your success is my success. So if you don't believe that I'm going to help you become successful, that means I don't make any money. Then no one's happy. You're unsuccessful. You've wasted money. I make no more money. Well, Why would I want that? 
just one simple cultural shift. Most salespeople prospect to hit their quota for this month or this quarter. When I work with my sales team, I'm telling them they have to prospect for a customer who will be a customer in 5, 10, 15 years' time. And it doesn't matter if they don't hit their quota. It doesn't. What does matter is that they sell to the right people for the right reasons, and those customers are blown away because of the level of attention, the reliability, the relevance, the consistency, and the fact that we always put them first. And right. the beauty of doing that is that you, the tariff on your prospecting time and the effort that goes into it when you're not churning. You know, I, I go into organizations where um, they have a 60, 80, 100, 120%, 180% turnover of their salespeople. I don't know if you've ever calculated the cost of a wrong hire, but it is eye-wateringly, sphincter-poppingly expensive. Isn't it like um, 30 grand? Oh, God, no. It's That's cheap. Even if you're hiring an SDR, you're getting away cheap if it only costs you 30K. Most people don't do the, uh, the real calculation. You've got the cost of hiring, training, onboarding, and then you've got all your management costs in that process. Then you've got to provision them. Then you provide them with leads and you provide them with marketing support and you pay them a salary for them to go out and prospect. Meanwhile, they're filling their pipeline and then there is a hidden cost of sale. It's not just the amount of money that you bring in. It's all the back, um, you know, the effort in the background that goes into getting them to this point. Now, when you think about it, according to Connect and Sell, uh, who do 40 million cold calls a year, um, so it's a good, reliable statistical base. On average, salespeople are making 33 dial attempts to get one effective, unless they're calling senior executives in IT, in which case it's one in 46. Now, one in 14 of those effectives results in a first meeting. Now, you do the maths. Then, on average, Seven out of eight first meetings do not result in a second. Only one out of eight does. When you multiply that out, dials to it's about a, one in a thousand, isn't it? Uh, it's zero point zero three percent effective uh, from dial to an advancement. I.e., you got through to a decision maker who is in your ICP. Um, you are relevant, and uh, they chose to advance the conversation to the next stage. So you're That's saying one in three thousand. That's one in 3,000. That's one in 3,000. That, I mean, if you ran your finance department in the same half-assed, slipshod manner, you would definitely be out of work and probably in jail. There's no way on God's earth anyone would allow you to run your operations or your finance or your manufacturing division in such a bad manner. But apparently it's okay to do that in marketing and sales. Ask yourself some better questions. Why do we do it this way? Why is it not working? My pal Ryan Reiset, um, he's, uh, did, uh, he posted on LinkedIn and he made just shy of 100 calls and he booked 33 meetings in a day for one of his clients. Now, it's possible to get this right. Within White Rabbit, I know that you're getting guys who are getting three, four, five hundred percent growth. They're, you know, they're, they're having to slow their process down um, because they cannot keep Literally, up with the they volume. can't keep up with it. They're so overwhelmed. They need to be hiring people. They don't even Absolutely. know what to do with it. Um, another one of my partners, Gap in the Matrix, has just helped Kia to launch their um, new MPV in the United States. They ran out of stock in the first month. <laughs> without discounting one cent. Now, when you think about it, what is it that all these organizations have in common? Well, actually, they're putting the customer first. They're focusing on asking themselves better questions so that they can deliver much better outcomes. And as a result of that, they're creating incredible growth in a controlled manner that means that they can scale, i.e., the founder, the owners do not have to do any more work in spite of the growth. And in fact, the pressure is now on planning. It's on uh, being uh, growth ready. It's making sure that they've built their bench 
um, so that as they achieve these epic levels of growth, then uh, they've got the back office functions, they've got operations, they've got manufacturing, they've got management already lined up to cope. But very few people in leadership are willing to take that plunge and ask those difficult questions to themselves and prepare their business for that kind of sustained um, incredible hypergrowth. It's there's not a lot of work. businesses out there that are that have the infrastructure in place to handle that. Where if you get too much business coming in, there's there's often cases where companies can bankrupt because they cannot handle it. But, you know, too much yeah. business, they bankrupt from it. Absolutely. So you need to plan ahead. But this is difficult work. It requires a lot of heavy lifting. And most people in the sales environment or sales leadership environment are quite comfortable. I mean, I, I, I say uh, you know, very often that my generation are beyond help. I'm 53. And it's people of my generation who've got to the top of the greasy pole. They're fat, dumb, and happy. And they have no interest. They have no vested interest in making the change. So the reality is it's your generation and uh, ones that are slightly older. So it's going to be uh, about the 25, 27-year-old up to about mid-40s that we have hope for. And beyond that, the bulk of them are just too comfy. Um, and it, it doesn't matter to them that they're burning through salespeople and SDRs on a regular basis. It doesn't matter uh, to them that there is massive mental illness that's being created from the stress. Doesn't matter that customers burn out. Well, I'm here to say it bloody well does matter. I'm furious, absolutely rabidly furious. Well, I mean, how do you think we got to this point? It's, it's all of that. Over and over and over and over and over and over again. The toxicity is just spreading like a disease. Shareholder value comes from having a great business with lifelong customers and highly engaged employees who give massive discretionary effort and they put their customer first. That's the reality of it. Yep, shareholder well, that, value I, I, would, I would agree with that. But then also shareholder value, the way that I look at it. So I'm, I'm pretty damn good at investment like stock investment and playing the stock market. When I was starting the company, I took no paycheck for a year and a half. How did I pay the bills? Really good at playing the stock market. The perceived value of a company, the public perceived value is the value. All of those things lead to it. But if you're treating your customers right, if you're treating your employees right, if you're delivering a consistent and reliable product and a consistent and reliable service, your valuation goes up. But really, it's the way the public perceives the business is how much that business is going to be worth. It's yeah. all perception. It's, it's all perception. It's all smoke and mirrors. And the, But the reality is that uh, you can grow so far. I mean, I, I've um, been uh, speaking to one organization that went public because they wanted to raise money. Um, but they've had something like 12 um, quarters in a row where they haven't actually been able to generate revenues. Uh, but what they have done is they've been able to milk their existing user base. Um, and so, uh, but that's come to an end. And you see this when the stock price starts to plummet. Um, yep. you, you see um, so often you can hide it for so long, but unless you've got those fundamentals in place, unless you've created a fantastic culture, unless you've created the um, progression for people to grow and evolve. I, I look at a company like UiPath. In seven years, they have grown 100,000%. And the wheels and wings are still not coming off. Why? Because they look after their people. They have a fabulous partnership program. And again, this is one of the topics we were going to talk about. Um, I, I fundamentally believe that in this day and age, and going forward, your ability to collaborate will determine your success. You need to be able to uh, collaborate with your competition. You need to be able to collaborate most of all with your customers and internally, because God knows there's enough internal competition and political infighting uh, to cause most CEOs to have an ulcer. Um, and you need to uh, par partner with your partners, with your supply chain, uh, with your resellers, with your strategic alliances. And that, I think, is the future of sales. 
I, think- I would agree 100. It's just, why compete with the competitor or the well adjacent competitor when you can create something with them that is far more effective, well, and then both of you make money, and then it's a more consistent delivery of service or product, and all of those little nuances now are combined. Right, but th- this then requires a shift in thinking. James Cass wrote a really interesting book on finite and infinite games, and Simon Sinek um, has uh, popularized the whole concept of infinite games. A finite game is one that has a beginning and an end, and someone has to win and someone has to lose. Um, And that's basically the Western economy. But that's Um, not how the world works. Say again? That's not how the world works, though. Well, again, it is the way some of the world works um, because um, that's how we've set it up. That's the that's the game. Uh, Good, thanks, right. Those are the rules that have been set up. I'm saying in um, nature. Right. Now, in an infinite game, instead of playing win-lose and there is an end, in an infinite game, the way you play is you play to keep the game going. And instead of taking a larger slice of a shrinking pie, you just make the pie bigger and everybody gets fat. And um, I think fundamentally strategic alliances, I'm working on my next book um, specifically around this topic um, because I think it's so important that people really understand that you've got the formal channel, um, but there are also plenty of strategic alliances that you can set up with people that you can go to market with, that you can go to market through and, if you want to grow 10, 20, 30%, go direct. If you want to grow 10x, 20x, 30x, go through strategic alliances. And that's a way to scale without incurring massive fixed cost, without having to take on headcount. Um, but you have to have the courage to let go of control. You have to be focused on other people's success. And very, very few leaders and managers and salespeople in the modern economy are wired like that. And therein, I think, lies the big opportunity. If you are wired like that, then please get in touch with me, get in touch with Rob, uh, get in touch with the likes of Zach Selch, join the Sales of Force for Good community. Um, because that's that, that, those are the reasons why we exist. It's to create a bigger pie and to keep the game going. And it's exciting stuff. I mean, imagine a moment a year from now where your business is 20x and the wings and wheels are not coming off. Your people love, love coming to work. Your customers love buying from you and they bring their wealthy friends. That has to be better than the crap that you're putting up with at the moment. And it is absolutely possible. It's not some fluffy ideal. It's the reality of when you get really good at strategic alliances, when you play an infinite game, and when you put the customer at the heart and make sure buyer safety is paramount. Yeah, I never understood how people don't have the mindset until I became an executive that uh, th- this problem even existed. Plain as day to me when I came into this position and started doing what I do, uh, that people don't actually collaborate. They don't work together to make something happen. And it was shocking to me to see that why isn't the customer firsthand? So I come from a background of user experience and user interface. That's quite literally the design level and uh, I guess participatory level of involvement with the consumer or the client or the customer, whoever it may be, or the partner of them using a product or a service in the best way, the most efficient way, and the way that makes them the happiest to get the best possible outcome and have the, the easiest and most effective understanding of what's going on. So it's quite literally customer centric to the T. So coming into that was really, really shocking to me. Well, this is where I think there will be a sea change um, in executive leadership. Historically, about 85% of CEOs have come from finance. Um, Now bear in mind, this is a discipline. (laughs) This, This is a discipline that puts people in the cost column, not the investment column, not the asset column. Um, And 15% come from direct sales leadership. Now, I think the future CEOs will come from three places. I believe they will come from the head of data, 
because those people actually get to see the whole piece. But where they will struggle is interpersonal skills. I think it's going to come from the head of CX, and they do genuinely understand people. And I think it's going to come from the channel chiefs. Those are the three areas that I would pinpoint as making the best future chief executives because they understand the big picture, they get customers, and they understand that people genuinely are an asset and the most important one. They're not a commodity to be burnt through. They're not um, to be treated like something that can just be brought on, discarded. I mean, who on God's earth would ever think this is a good model? You hire 10 in the hope three might work out by the end of the year, and you'd be left with one after two years. That's that's a 10% expectation of success. That's that's disgusting. It, it's just crazy. I mean, it's, it's an obscenity when you consider the human cost. That's nine people's careers being just discarded on the scrap heap because you are too lazy, too stupid, and too incompetent to do a proper job of hiring them in the first place, onboarding them properly, training and developing them, making sure that they are getting their needs met as well and putting them uh, their needs above yours. That just smacks of selfish incompetence. And it starts with the whole concept of shareholder value, the idea that a few people get rich on the back of others. Um, I'm a I'm a massive capitalist, not only in girth but also in philosophy. Now, um, I, there was a time where capitalism was about groups of people who clubbed together and worked together in concert towards achieving an objective. But somewhere, we went wrong, and we decided that it was okay for a tiny handful of investors to make most of the money. But the reality is they are incredibly wasteful. They make 40, 50 bets um, in their fund. And in the hope that one becomes a unicorn, they've got a couple of whales and maybe a couple of elephants uh, that come out of it. And the rest die on the vine. And those founders have been suckered by the myth that somehow um, they have to get funding. And over the last 40 years, uh, did you know that um, 30 years ago, there were only two venture capital funds? Oh, I now there that. are over 8,000. Sure. Now, I what that's that. done is it's driven the price up. And so in order to be able to buy uh, opportunities and buy, buy companies, invest in companies, they've had to spend way more. So now the only way they can make any real money is by increasing their leverage, by putting those companies into massive debt. WeWork is a classic example. He went for 10 million. They told him he had to go for 100 million. End of the day, dead on his ass. Why? Because they had a crap business model for the financial uh, model that underpinned it. WeWork was a perfectly viable uh, business model. But then they got ranked, uh, thrown into massive debt. And give a 24-year-old 100 million, they won't know what the bloody hell to do with it. Stop this lunacy. It's crazy. I know that there are good venture capitalists and private equity companies out there. I'd love to speak to them. I'd love to speak to the ones that are patient investors. Yeah, but who they are invest they? They invest in companies because they want the company to be successful. But who even are they? Uh, I mean, there are a couple I've heard of, um, but I've yet to meet them. Right. I'm, I'm getting a couple on my podcast uh, who play that long game. Um, yeah, well, that's exactly what I'm talking about is that try finding one. Yeah. It's oh, well, I've been trying for six years. Yeah. It's really fucking hard work. Because they're there to take what you have or to make a quick buck, mostly. That's what they're there for. They don't care about the people. They don't care about anything. They care about a quick exit. And to make a huge chunk of change, and they don't care who they who becomes expensable on the way there. That's it. That's what they do. And that's wrong on a lot of levels because you have a business that could be doing incredible things. They don't care where it goes. They care that it is at the peak profit margin. And then right when it hits its top level, where it would plateau with that regular financial model that you're talking about, they sell out. 
they take the money and then they just walk away. Well, the, uh, what's really interesting is about 80% of these trades happen VC to VC, private equity to private equity. They never really achieve the exit. Um, and when they do that flip, then the founders and uh, the employees have their um, shareholding diluted because these people come in. And it, it's, a, it's a throwback to the Reagan era. Um, you know, the, the Reagan era kicked off in the late 70s, early 80s with these corporate raiders changing the landscape. Um, and uh, management saw that they could make a killing. Um, and so they bought into it and they've let it happen. But, you know, 40 years ago, we took a very, very, very wrong turn. And it, now is the time for us to say enough, no more. Um, you know, we're going to put the customer at the heart. We're really going to focus on buyer safety, employee safety. I'm not saying you don't take risks, and risks are important. But risking, the definition of risking in my world is you go from lower to higher value with the possibility that you will lose some or all of what you've got. The problem is that most people are being driven into sacrifice, where they're going from higher value, where they own the IP, where they've created a lovely culture, where people want to come to work, where their customers love working with them. And then they go from high to lower value because now they're in debt. Um, they move from the customer's best interest to making their quarterly quota. I mean, why? Why yeah, they need to reduce bottom line costs. They need to increase top line revenue and they oh, need okay. to make up for the difference is that they're trying to chase the, the, the whole idea behind we owe so much money. What do we do? Well, we have to cut. We have to cut, 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 cut. And this That's is where the go. corporate raiders kicked in 40 years ago. So I'll why bail you out by giving you a giant lump sum and then just change everything. But why does a privately owned business need to operate on quarterly reporting cycles? Why I have no idea. Privately owned business need to put customers under pressure um, so that you land the business and the revenue this quarter instead of focusing on the customer's outcomes and creating a profitable relationship with them. I, I had a client last year when I had my training business who was at 220% of quota and his boss was giving him shit. Why? because he wasn't putting out enough proposals because the VC were telling them that they had to put out more proposals. Jesus Christ. His conversion rate was 95% on proposals. And they were... Well, hang on, this is important. He was 220% of quota. And he was being told to put his clients under pressure to buy no matter what, even if he had to offer a, an 80% discount. Now, those customers wouldn't buy until they were ready. And when they were ready to buy, they'll still want the 80% discount. So all he was doing was being, all, all that was happening was he was being put under pressure um, in order to make up for the notional fictional revenue target that the rest of the team was unable to achieve and um, strip his pipeline out for the next quarter. You, you Marcus, that story, you literally have my blood boiling right now. Like, yeah. That, that, just, that so. is, that is, absolutely horrendous it's disgusting that cannot what discounts yeah. don't even make sense because the second you say they can have one they're getting it and when someone's going to be ready to buy they're ready to buy when they're ready to buy it has nothing to do with the cost it might but usually price works against you when you're selling if you're using it as the leverage 70 percent of the time or greater it's right. not helping you. Um, i've interviewed a bunch of chief purchasing officers and CXOs specifically on this topic. And without a single exception, every one of them is pissed off, angry, fuming, furious, livid, incandescent, I think I've made my point, when a salesperson offers them a discount to buy the business. And there's a reason for this. You didn't offer me your best price, so I'm now gonna see how far I can squeeze you because there's probably more. Um, and it feels like you lied to me. And again, um, read a book called The Other Side of Sales by Mark Shankius. Mark has, for the last 17 years, been a procurement professional, 15 years at Mars. He's uh, a, a gamekeeper turned poacher, and he now teaches salespeople how to engage with and sell to procurement. Jill Robbins, 
um, 20 years. Love Jill. She's CPA. great. She's been on a, a previous episode of this podcast and two of yours, I believe. Uh, absolutely. In fact, she's been on several roundtables as well. Um, and uh, without exception, they say when a salesperson tries to buy the business, there's a little bit of bile that rises up. Um, and I giggle inside because now I know the game is on. And I'm going to squeeze the buggers until I get the deal that I uh, deserve. Why didn't they come to me with uh, this in the first place? Why didn't they align themselves? I, I, they, both of them. And in fact, all the CXOs have said they almost never buy the cheapest. There is a branch of procurement that does. Everybody buys the middle, the middle to the middle high. That's uh, actually, in my experience, most of them will buy the premium if you've done your bloody job. Right, the problem right. is that most people in sales do not because they don't have the business acumen. They don't understand the moving parts. They've just come in and their boss has said, you've got to go and get me that logo. So off they go and they try and get that logo. Never happened. True. That, that, so business acumen, uh, uh, getting into that, that is so important because if you don't understand how a business functions, how they're going to benefit from it, how they're going to leverage it, how they're going to implement a solution into their business, it's very hard to solution with people and give them an actual and, valuable response. And if you don't understand the impact and implications of the decision mm -hmm. that they're going to make if they buy from you. What is the outcome? Ultimately, Absolutely. what is the outcome and what is the outcome to them, to their business? And if you cannot give that answer and you give generalizations, like you said, ambiguity is the bane of a salesperson's existence, that well, is exactly what. It, it, but it gets worse. And I, I've um, worked with uh, an MSP in the past, a managed service provider, and they were yet another Microsoft Gold partner, which makes them one of thousands. Ten, hundreds of thousands, literally, there's a quarter of a million out there. Now, um, they're working in the National Health Service in the UK. And they can go and they can go and sell them Office 365 or Microsoft 365 as your power platforms, like everybody else. <coughs> or they can take the time to try and understand why they're looking at making this investment, which is a strategic investment that's going to have an impact for the next five to eight years and probably longer. That would They've kind of merged a couple of these um, organizations. Now, one might be really high performing, another one not so well. So what are the implications of those two merging? Well, will it drag down the top performer or will it lift up the bottom performer? And um, what are the clinical outcomes? If you don't understand that what they're trying to do is drive down their pharmaceutical spend through preventative medicine and increase life expectancy, reduce uh, instances of type 2 diabetes, um, cancer, uh, cardiovascular disease, and thereby increase the health of their constituency. And all you do is you turn up and you try and flog Microsoft products. You're just a commodity. If, on the other hand, you've had those conversations with the executive and management and finance and clinicians and patient groups and uh, people um, in day-to-day -day operations, then you can put together a solution that is actually fit for purpose. Because no one buys technology because they want technology. No one in the history of humanity has ever woken up and said, you know, bugger me, what I really want is Microsoft 365. <laughs> They're trying to create value. They're trying to work out how they can best transform, how they can invest where they can maximize impact and value for themselves, their internal customers, their external customers. They've got finite resource and they want to be able to make the best decisions. So how do we help you make the best future investment decision and focus on those areas that will help you achieve your desired outcomes. But again, most salespeople lack any form of business awareness. And then um, you've also got to understand the internal politics. And they're trying to, um, the board is trying to maximize their value and they're trying to achieve growth and success uh, against their uh, KPIs and their objectives. So yeah, anyone who's buying a strategic solution in IT um, doesn't care about the IT. The engineers in IT might, but no one else in the organization does. You've got the board, you've got the employees, you've got suppliers, you've got partners. And 
they're trying to implement and execute the board's strategy and vision. And how do you do that in a way that also puts their customers at the heart of everything that you do? If you understand all of that, when you sell your Microsoft 365 rollout or your Azure rollout or your Power Platforms or whatever, all of a sudden, you are substantially more valuable. And I would happily pay a premium. In, in the past, when I had my training business, I routinely got 12 to 56 times my competitors' rate because they actually felt understood. And that meant that I didn't have to do anywhere near the level of prospecting that my competition did. If I got paid 56 times more than my competitors, that means I need 156 of the revenue from each deal. Now, let's say it's 12 times. And that means that I don't have to do those 33 dials to get those 14 effectives to get those that one meeting. 12 times over. got to ask yourself better questions. That's right. And the salespeople need to ask better questions and they need to help solve a problem. Because what do high-level executives do all day, every day? They solve problems. That's their job. So if a base-level employee has an issue and they can't solve it, they talk to their manager. The manager can't solve it. They send it up to the director. If the director can't solve it. They send it up to the VP. If the VP can't solve it, it goes up to the C-suite. The C-suite can't solve it. You're shit out of luck and they need to find somebody external to help solve the problem. So if they're having these problems and they don't have a solution for it and you're not helping them actively solve a problem, they have no reason to talk to you. Well, if only it were that simple, because by and large, what most people are doing in most organizations because of the culture that they've created is they're hiding their mistakes. One of the things I love from is the Dalio's, worst thing. Yeah. Well, one Ray, of Ray, the Ray, worst things that the market has right now. Ray, Ray Dalio. Uh, runs the world's largest privately owned hedge fund. And um, he wrote a fabulous book, which everyone who's listening to this should read, called Principles. And they have a failure log. And they are perfectly fine with failure. What they punish is hiding failure. And if, if something gets put into the failure log, then they collectively work out how to solve that problem. But and the idea that actually um, senior executives are solving problems, I think, is um, is Alice in Wonderland stuff. You know, it's a fairy tale. Most of the time, what they're doing is they're putting out fires, many of which are of their own making because of the culture that they have created. They've created these conditions where they are chief fire officer and head arsonist all in one. They end up doing their day job early in the morning, late in the evening, and at weekends. And they're suffering from burnout because they're not asking better questions. They're not taking enough time to reflect. Another fantastic book is The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham. One of my favorite takeaways from there, every chapter has a bunch of questions that senior executives should read, digest, and respond to. Um, and it is the most excruciating read for that reason, because you realize just what a shit job you're doing as an executive. What's the name of that one of my favorite takeaways was take 40 to 45 minutes every week, you, a legal pad and a pen, no interruptions and one question that you then spend 40 minutes thinking deeply about. And it, what normally comes out of that actually is more questions. But if you want better answers, ask better questions. What was the name of that book? The Road Less Stupid. The Road Less Stupid. That's a good, I got to check that out. Because yeah, uh, that's something that I do is that I, I I reflect for about an hour a day. That's just something I've always yeah. done since college. And so that's interesting that it's in there like that. And the way that it's framed, I think, is really awesome. That could help a lot of people. Well, at the end of each chapter, there's a dozen or so questions that will make you wince as an, as an executive. They're fucking brilliant. Love it. Oh, I'm excited. I'm about to buy that puppy. That sounds great. So if anybody wants to buy that book, check it out. It'll be great. Um, and if anybody wants to check out, so we're low on time, Marcus. I'm sorry. This is a lot of fun. We can go for hours and hours, of course, but don't want to do that to the listeners. Um, if you want to check out sales, a force for good, it's SAFG, hashtag SAFG, S-A-F-F-G. It's awesome. Um, feel free to get in touch with Marcus or myself or anybody who is affiliated with it. Um, I'm going to be putting it into my uh, tagline and LinkedIn so you can search it. Uh, I think pretty much everybody else is going to be doing that, right, Marcus? 
So yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's searchable. Um, but yeah, no, this is great. And really, I think the, ta the key takeaway here is that it's a change of mindset. It's a change of heart. It's a change of process. And it's a change of perception is what's going to get us to the next level of business because where it's been headed is honestly pretty sad. Uh, part of why my business exists is because of this problem. It is so blatant and coming into like, you know, what I was doing to begin with had nothing to do with what I'm doing now when, when starting the company. And it was from listening to the market that we turned and pivoted toward this direction because of how clear it became of how much pain and how many problems are within it. We, we created it because there's a need for it. Well, we created it first. There's a need for it, but it's not nearly as, as, as badly needed as what's going on here and what Marcus and I are talking about and what really all of the people who are trying to instill change into this society of business that we have today are trying to change and do better. So I think it was really an eye-opening experience uh, and it probably was an eye-opening experience for everybody listening today. So uh, I hope everybody got some value out of it. If you'd like to contact Marcus, what's the best place to get to, uh, in touch with you? Um, email me Marcus at laughs-last.com or direct message me on LinkedIn. And if you own uh, or you're the CEO of a tech company in the 10 to 50 million mark and you really want to grow your business without the wheels coming off and grow compound 200% per annum, have massively engaged employees, customers for life, um, then let's schedule a Zoom call. Absolutely. Yeah, no, he's the, he's the real deal. I work with him. Fantastic. Uh, and last, uh, this is uh, this is down the rabbit hole podcast. So if you want to find this, you can find it pretty much on any streaming service. Um, hashtag DTRH podcast. If you listen to it, if you like it, share it. Use that hashtag. That'd be fantastic. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for your time today, everybody. This podcast is brought to you by White Rabbit Intel, a sales enablement artificial intelligence company that helps you hit that 10x growth and enables sales and marketing teams to know more, win more, and close often. And I mean that too. Uh, the results have been ridiculous so far. Uh, very good stuff. As long as you participate properly and take it seriously. Uh, anyway, implement. sorry, what, Marcus? And you implement it. Yes, implement. Well, no I mean, being the best you can buy anything in the world, and if you don't implement it or use it, it's useless, right? Absolutely. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, follow Down the Rabbit Hole podcast for new episodes weekly on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Pandora and YouTube. If you'd like to apply to be featured on the podcast or recommend a featured guest, please feel free to email us at the team at whiterabbitintel.com.